What is the broker protocol? That is today's question on the Transition to RA question and answer series. It is question number 56. Hi, this is Brad Wales with Transition to RA, where I help you understand everything there is to know about why and how to transition to the RA model. Uh, so on today's episode, we're actually going to be talking about a topic related to that latter part, that how to transition to the RA model. And so there's a lot of variables that go into that. I've, I've made a lot of episodes covering a lot of those topics. Uh, but on today's, we're going to talk about a very specific tool, for lack of a better term, called the broker protocol uh, that for some advisors, and we're going to, based on what we're going to talk about today, you understand why I don't say all advisors, but for some advisors is an available tool to help with that transition. And so we're going to be diving into any, anything and everything broker protocol. So uh, with that topic, I have a wonderful guest on today, Eric Cyber with Capital Forensics. Eric, thank you for joining today. Thank you for having us, Brad. We appreciate it. Indeed. So a uh, couple quick housekeeping things before we get into the uh, actual question. So uh, one of the reasons Eric is a, is a wonderful guest here to, to help us with this topic, two reasons. One, uh, his firm Capital Forensics is the record keeper of the broker protocol. So, and we'll dive into what, what that exactly means. Uh, but clearly being the record keeper is, is uh, well dialed into to all things protocol. Uh, and then Eric himself is called upon at times to be an expert witness on this exact topic. So clearly on an individual basis, uh, very well versed as well. So uh, excited to have Eric on to, to help us with this topic. And I, and I would point out why I will refer to it as the broker protocol. And Eric, you feel free to refer to it as as you customarily do, the, the official name, I had to write it down to make sure I got it right, is the Protocol for Broker Recruiting. So to be clear, that is the official title, but it is commonly my experience. And again, Eric, feel free to, to refer to it as, as you feel best, is broker protocol is what most all folks refer to it as. So that's that's kind of what you'll, you'll hear me referencing it. But just to be clear, there is a formal name to it as well. So uh, before we dive into the questions, Eric, if you could give a little background on yourself and your firm, I think that would be helpful. Sure, thanks, Brad, appreciate the introduction. Uh, I spent uh, 35 years on Wall Street in various capacities, financial advisor, branch manager, complex director, head of the private client group. So I've always been in the front office and frankly, have always been involved with recruiting. Um, I left Wall Street my last firm was RBC Wealth Management, left there in 2016 to join Capital Forensics, at which time I became a managing director with the firm. Capital Forensics uh, is not quite 30 years old. We do litigation support, regulatory consulting, and in 2017, we took on the role of the uh, administrator for the broker protocol. Perfect. So a lot, lot of uh, depth and experience there to, to be certain. So uh, again, a, a wonderful, uh, wonderful uh, guest to have uh, help us with this. So again, thank you for that. So to, to jump right into it and, uh, and we'll walk through kind of some of the backstory, the history, how it came to be, but, but at a macro level, just for folks that aren't perhaps at all familiar with it or, or just kind of vaguely familiar with it, if, if you could start by just telling us what exactly is the broker protocol? What's the purpose of it existing? And then how is it functionally utilized in a transition? If you, you could start that macro level, I think that would be helpful. Sure, thanks. So uh, 
for those of you who have been around for a while, you probably remember temporary restraining orders. Every time a broker left a firm, the former firm, the firm from which he or she left, issued a temporary restraining order preventing them from moving their clients, trying to move their book, even contacting their clients. Uh, and back in 2003, the protocol was started to allow clients the freedom to have their accounts serviced where they wanted without the interruption from whether uh, litigation or temporary restraining orders uh, against the broker who left his or her former firm. Uh, the intent was to reduce litigation costs as long as the financial services provider, the financial advisor, uh, followed the written rules of the protocol and followed its provisions. So if you were leaving a protocol member firm to go to a protocol member firm, as long as you followed a certain set of rules, you can go, no TROs, no litigation, nobody's trying to stop the client from leaving, other than perhaps the former firm reaching out to the client to say, Mr. and Ms. Smith, we'd love you to keep your business here. What would it take to keep you? But other than that, there were no restrictions. And, th and there's a, if I'm correct, uh, and, and at the end of the day, ultimately, anyone that is interested in trying to utilize the protections of the protocol will want to talk to a firm like yours or an expert like yours. So we'll, we'll keep it high level. But if, if I'm correct, there's there's specific protocols that have to be followed of specific information you can and can't take. And, and to have that protection you just described, that has to be followed to a T. Is that correct? That is correct. There are there, there's several rules for the protocol. And by the way, on our website is the entire rule, the protocol list itself. So if anybody goes to capitalforensics.com, upper right corner, you'll see the words broker protocol. Click on that and it will tell you everything you ever wanted to know about the protocol, uh, including the signed agreement itself. But basically, uh, there are two basic requirements. And one is that the party broker must give his or her branch manager a list. And the list has to contain the client's name, who, the client that they're taking, the titling of the account, the home address, the phone number, and the email address. So it might be Eric Cyber, IRA, Eric and his wife, Cyber, joint tenants with rights of survivorship. Our, our name, our phone number, our email address, our home address, and the title of the account. The list that they give to their manager must include my old account number. However, they are precluded from taking that account number to the new firm. So to the new firm, they can take five of the six uh, columns, if you will, with the same information, but you must leave the manager the account number so that he or she, your manager, can quickly disseminate the information to the appropriate parties and have the correct account number. That's and, and so the, the key, I think, with that, right, is if you have the, the luxury and we're going to talk about who is or isn't part of the protocol or who could join it and those sorts of things. But if you if you have the luxury where both parties are members to the protocol and you can you can benefit from it, the key is play by the rules, because the minute you step out of those rules, then, then you no longer have these protections. And, and that that would certainly be a shame because not everyone not every advisor has the ability to benefit from the protocol because again, their, their current firm or their future firm might not both be members. And so, so if, if you are, again, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, a thing to assist with the transition, but you want to follow it specifically. Um, so you mentioned 2003 as, as when it started. 
uh, if I'm correct, it was a half dozen firms or, or is it a very small number of firms originally, um, primarily wirehouse firms? Is that generally correct? Yeah, I'm sorry. It was actually signed into, into as, a, as an agreement in 2004, but they began kicking it around in 03. And basically, it was created by three wirehouses, which was simply Merrill Lynch, UBS, who had just had just um, become UBS, formerly Payne Weber, and, and Citibank Smith Barney. So those were the three signatories, if you will, to the protocol. And they agreed, look, you're suing me, I'm suing you. We're, we're getting in the way of our clients. My broker's going to your firm. Your broker's coming to my firm. Why don't we just have an agreement that if we follow the set of rules that we lay out, we'll stop suing each other. We'll save on litigation costs. We'll save on interrupting clients who want to go with their financial advisor so that they can choose to do business where and how they want. So that was the basis of it. And there were only three members in 2004. And uh, interestingly enough, by the end of 06, two years later, there were 18 members. And then in 2007, 21 new members joined. So suddenly everybody started to think, this thing makes sense. Why sue each other? I'll become a member of the protocol. We'll all follow the rules. And then we don't have to sue each other. So by 2007, they had upwards of 40 members. And uh, it continued to grow over the years. And uh, as, of this, as, as of the most recent count, uh, we have um, what they, I should say the agreement has, but we have uh, over 2,000 broker-dealers and registered investment advisors and hybrid financial services firm, uh, duly registered firms, et cetera, as protocol members. That That is some growth from three to over 2,000. And uh, I think it's fair to say the original signatories of it or the original inventors, for lack of a better term, probably did not envision its current state as was what they were kind of uh, started with. And we'll, we'll get to that because some firms have even left the protocol. Is there any limitation um, to who, who can join it? Um, while originally it was maybe thought of as a broker dealer type thing, as you mentioned, RIAs and specific to my audience, RIAs themselves are. Is there any, is there any limitation to who can join the protocol? No, actually, any financial services firm can join. Um, I don't think that was their intent. They weren't looking to become the uh, the pioneers, if you will, of broker protocol and recruiting. But it was an agreement among the three of them. And as it caught on, people were like, that makes so much sense. I want to be a member of that. So there was always an administrator for the protocol. And uh, in order to join, again, on our website is a joinder agreement. But you simply fill out a joinder agreement, email it in and your membership becomes active the day in which you join. So um, it's very easy to become a member and you just send it in, fill out all the information. However, it has to be obviously dated correctly. As the administrator, we just make sure that the form is filled out correctly to try to help avoid litigation down the road. Um, if you wanna withdraw from the protocol, one of their basic rules founded in 2004 was you can withdraw today and it'll become effective 10 calendar days from today. So if you send in your withdrawal notice today, it's, it's intended to become effective December 10th, 10 business days from now. Um, but there's no restrictions on who can join, how to join, uh, they can join as a member. And uh, what we do, by the way, Brad, which I think is important to note, is because we think it's important for people to know who joined and who withdrew, 
Um, we send out two emails a day. Uh, if we receive a joinder agreement or a withdrawal before noon central time, we send out an email to all the members by 1 p.m. central time. Uh, Capital Forensics is headquartered in Chicago. If you if you receive it after noon, then we also will send out a 5 p.m. Central Time email to all members that says attached to the new withdrawals and joinder agreements. If we don't have any new jo- joinder agreements or withdrawals, we just don't send out an email. Okay. And then every Monday at noon or 1 p.m. Central Time, we send out the complete list alphabetically. Year in which it was, uh, which they became members, withdrawals, et cetera, and any carve outs, which we'll get to carve outs after. But um, so it really is a comprehensive list every Monday. And if you are a recipient of that email, you know exactly what's going on. And so, so clearly more additions than, than withdrawals. And, and you probably don't know the number, and I, I certainly wouldn't expect you to, of, of how many withdrawals, but there, but there have been a number over the years. Um, it's fair to say, I'll, I'll give a little rant because I'm at liberty to, to do so. And, and Eric, in your line of work, you, you maybe have to just play it, play a straight shooter. But for, for advisors watching this, if you are at a firm now that either never signed on to the protocol to begin with, or, and there are cases like this that were signed on at one point and then proactively withdrew from it, it, it does beg the question, why is that necessary if they are providing an environment for you as the advisor that makes you want to stay at their firm, why why should they worry about removing some barrier to, to making it easier for you to leave if, if they are if they are already providing enough satisfaction that you wouldn't even want to do that? And so I think it is telling that firms that either don't join it or withdraw from it uh, are are generally realizing that they will in theory, or the concern is they will have more departures than they will have arrivals that benefit from it. So they they feel whatever good they could have for a advisor joining their firm to be part of the protocol. Unfortunately, for those firms, there's there's more folks leaving. And so they've put up this guardrail. And I know when some firms made a a withdrawal, they they gave some fancy spin about why this was somehow a good thing for advisors. Again, my my personal rant. I think that's just an acknowledgement that they cannot do a, a sufficient job keeping their advisors happy to the point they want to stay entirely on their own, and and the protocol is making it easier for them to leave, so they remove themselves from the protocol. So I won't I won't ask you to make a rant, Eric, because you're you're uh, uh, no, I won't. I won't go the road, but that the one, thing, the one thing that I would add to that, though, Brad is. If a firm is focusing more on retention of its, of its advisors than it is on recruiting, then there might be a good reason why you are not a member of the protocol. Uh, however, there's always an opportunity to recruit. And therefore, to me, I've always worked for protocol member firms and uh, found it advantageous. Yeah, and that's a fair point. There are, there are some firms, right, that do not believe in recruiting advisors from other firms. They only train, you know, organic grown advisors. And so I guess you, you could, that's a fair point to say, well, they don't have any utility for it anyways, because they they don't look to bring advisors over. So I think that is a, that is a fair point in that scenario, but there's certainly firms that absolutely look to attract advisors um, that have, have made a conscious decision to, to either not be part of it or no longer be part of it. And I, 
I just asked you if you're an advisor at one of those firms, just ask, ask yourself why that is. Um, so next up, uh, and you alluded to this a moment ago. So again, I know we're going kind of high level here in, in how this works, but there, there does seem to be kind of some new variation. I don't know if it's just last couple of years of, I think you used the term carve out I've I've heard you know a partial membership or whatnot. What what exactly is that referring to? You know, I would have thought it's hey, firm A is part of the protocol and that's all it takes. But apparently, there's maybe more to it. Sure. So, um, my best example is let's say you're a bank that like a Citibank who had Smith Barney, but Citibank also had branches, and therefore perhaps they didn't want that branch. You know, some of these uh, larger banks hired third-party marketing people, and I don't know that, that that wasn't specific to Citibank. It was simply an example. But uh, some firms hire third-party marketing firms to sit in their local branches and talk to people who walk into the local branch to sell them anywhere from just packaged products like mutual funds and annuities up to and including the full range of financial service products. And because they feel some of these banks, as an example, that those are their clients and not the third party marketing person who, you know, the teller is saying, Smith, why don't you walk over to talk to a financial advisor over there in that corner and he or she can help you. So they carve out or exempt them from coverage. So even though the bank broker dealer might be holding their licenses, whether it's a 763, 65, 66, um, they carve them out to say they are not covered by the protocol. So when they leave, they're governed by a very different set of rules than when a financial advisor within the bank broker dealer, who is a, whether it's a full-time employee or an independent broker, um, the rights that they're covered by with protocol. Okay. So that, I think that's a perfect example where at face value, this should be a simple topic. The reality is there's the devil's in the details. And so when you when you are considering making a transition, this is one of the components you think through is is, is our both sides going to be members of the protocol. And then to, to your explanation just now, okay, we you got to dig a little deeper and make sure that there's no carve outs excluding certain scenarios of that firm that, that may not be part of it and that may or may not impact a particular advisor. So that's certainly worth being aware of and just shows that this is kind of a, a fluid arrangement to a degree. Um, and if so, I could just jump in for a moment, Fred, sure. if I may jump in, there's two, two things that are worth mentioning here. The protocol agreement itself has a few carve-outs. So back in 04, they agreed if this case, if that case, then they may not be covered. In addition to that, firms themselves have their own carve-outs. They could say anybody, you know, I mean, they would obviously it's a silly example, but they could say, you know, anybody whose last name begins with S is not covered by it. And that carve out will be in that Monday email that we send out that says firm XYZ is a member. However, here are the exempt employees. And it could be, and you'll often find this too, by the way, institutional brokers. They're not part of the protocol. So if they're covering institutions, um, you know, those types of examples will be in the month, the weekly mailer that we send out as the carve out that the firm has adapted rather than the broker protocol agreement has adapted. 
And I, I think that's why that's so important that you guys send out the updates as frequently as you do that in, in theory, in a, an advisor looking to make a transition could, could look into this. Oh, my, my firm's on, on the list. I'll do a quote unquote protocol transition. And then perhaps there is some carve out added and, and unless you're aware of it at the time you, you go to make your move um, that, that could create issues. And, and so nothing for any advisors to be intimidated by or concerned by because you rely on experts uh, like Eric and his team to, to help with this topic. So as you're watching this now, just the takeaway is be, be aware of these things, but ultimately you, you will want to rely on professionals that, that can help you right, right up until the goal line of these different details. Um, Great. And the only catch there is we don't, we don't give legal advice, Brad, obviously, uh, but we are the administrator of the protocol. And if somebody has a question or wants to find out if XYZ firm has a carve out, then we're certainly happy to help. Yep. Yep. And there, and there are some wonderful uh, attorneys, securities attorneys that, that absolutely can provide that legal advice when it's, when it's needed um, mm -hmm. to be part of that. And, and to be clear, while this is the transition to RIA uh, uh, series, the protocol is not just for RIAs. It wasn't originally envisioned for RIAs. It, it was broker-dealer, broker-dealer moves. Uh, now it's morphed into broker-dealer to RIA moves and all kinds of variations of it. So this this episode is certainly relevant to folks in the RA world, um, but but also folks that maybe their circumstances are such that that, that they're moving from one broker dealer to another. Um, but to be clear on on uh, what's what's accessible is if you are starting an RIA on your own, that that's where you were just part of that process is is set up your own RIA on the uh, broker protocol, and so. If you're leaving a firm that's a member of protocol, again, it has to be two-sided. It would be your firm that you're starting uh, would need to become a member. Or if you're looking to join a particular firm, you'd, you'd want to know um, if, if they themselves are a member. And so along the lines of, of joining it, and, and we talked about kind of anyone generally can do it if they follow the, the process, is two, two questions. Is there a cost involved in becoming a member? And then and then how long does it take if if next Monday, someone wants to submit the, the paperwork, how long does it take to, to become active? You talked about someone withdrawn, but, but what's the process in the front end? Sure. So um, there was no cost involved um, to become a member of the protocol. And uh, once you're a member, you're in, in it uh, for perpetuity until you uh, submit a withdrawal letter. Uh, again, there, there's a joiner agreement, which names the broker-dealer or the RIA, the person contact the email address, and the effective date, which is the date that it's signed. Uh, we typically um, just check it to make sure the form is filled out correctly, and then you are effectively a member the day you, that you joined. As I said earlier, if you get, if we receive the joinder agreement after noon central time, then the notice notification to all members will go out after, on the, in the afternoon email, which would be the 5 p.m. email. If we receive it before noon central time, then it'll go out with a 1 p.m. email and everybody will know that that new broker deal or RIA is a member. It's a pretty, pretty quick, efficient process to, to make sure it wasn't overlooked. No, no cost involved. This is um, so it's, it's a wonderful thing. Capital Forensics is, is willing to be the record keeper or administrator, I think, is the, the term you had used for it um, to, to make this all possible to do. So, but one of one of my final questions, which I'm I'm looking forward to, and, and not 
put you on this hot seat that you got to come up with any creative stories. But as an expert witness called upon to help with this, I presume that's often in cases where there's a disagreement after the fact about whether it was utilized correctly or not. So any, any takeaways from your time performing that function of, of things that, that are like, okay, th- th- this could have been avoided and, and, and if you had just done X, Y, and Z. Any, any good stories or takeaways from, from your observations? Yeah, so uh, we've been involved in several uh, lawsuits and I testified in several lawsuits as to the rules of protocol and how, they, how it works and whether or not, in fact, there has been a breach of the intent of the protocol. Uh, in one instance, the person uh, left the protocol firm and went to another protocol firm, but joined a team that had a carve out that said, you're an employee of my team, not of the broker dealer. And in fact, um, you are signing this agreement that says you cannot, you do not have access to take any of my clients because of this gentleman, it was his team, if you will. So when he, when this person joined the team, the financial advisor joined the team, uh, the other broker, the firm, sorry, the other broker dealer from which he left sued the new team saying, or sued, sued the person saying, no, you're not a member of the protocol because there's a carve out. And that carve out is actually in the initial protocol agreement. They do, so they do, they did cover certain areas where, you know, make sure that this isn't the case. In another case I was on, somebody left a non-protocol firm to join a protocol firm. The rules are very different. You can hand your non-protocol firm a list of, of the five necessary uh, topics, as I said, name, address, title of account, et cetera, and then say, okay, here's what I'm taking and take them. Because as a non-protocol firm, you are not covered by the rights of it. And there are very specific rules on what you can and cannot do when you're either going to a non-protocol firm from a protocol firm or leaving a non-protocol firm to join a protocol firm. So there are specific rules. And of course, that ends up in litigation. And then finally, um, I was in in an agreement. I I was in an arbitration recently where uh, one of the carve-outs in the broker protocol uh, for recruiting, actually, the protocol for broker recruiting, excuse me, actually said that a member of a team, if they're on the team for less than four years, they cannot take all the clients that the team covers. If, however, they're servicing the clients for four years or more, then they are deemed a co-financial uh, advisor. Well, this person wasn't on the team four years, and of course, litigation pursued. So we've seen a lot of twists where it's not as clear and you leave it up to the arbitration panel to decide whether or not they believe there was a breach of the rules. Yeah. And unfortunately, anytime you're, you're talking arbitration panels, you're, you're talking a lot of, a lot of time, a lot of money to sort that sort of thing out. So, so clearly better to, to obviously try to get it right on the front end and not run afoul of these things. But I think, and thank you for sharing those examples. I, I think it's, demonstrates while this is a wonderful tool out there um in theory it's a pretty simplistic idea and i think the i think the actual document's only two pages itself if i'm if i'm correct right so it's 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 not you know this encyclopedia long thing but it's yet it's morphed because of these carve outs and the different scenarios it's it's morphed into something 
certainly bigger than it was originally envisioned as. And, and uh, again, not not to intimidate the process at all, but it but it's important to again just know that these details need to be searched or looked into. As the advisor, you 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 can rely on professionals that do this day in and day out to help you with that. It's not something you have to do entirely on your own, but you will want to know in general the availability of this and and, and how it works in that regard. Uh, so, Eric, for folks that want to uh, jump on over, take a look, just a you know an initial look. I think you said it's linked to on the website, but what's the best way for folks that want to reach out? Uh, to your firm or, or to the degree, it would make sense to dive deeper in, into you. What What's the best way for people to uh, to contact? Well, uh, info at capitalforensics.com, I-N-F-O, or, or information at Capital Forensics. They both come to us and uh, uh, three or four of us receive those emails. Um, my email address is, is actually on my bio on the website as well. And uh, anybody at Capital Forensics is always willing to help whoever has a question on that. The one, the one caveat I'd like to build in, if I may, Brad, before we sign off is, um, you know, there are other folks who carry a list of protocol members. Ours is the only official list that is updated twice a day, and other firms may not be aware of all the changes that are going on. So my advice for anybody who is listening is, if you Google anything other than capitalforensics.com, you may find a list that may not be through today at noon, like ours is. So that's my my uh, a word to the wise is sufficient, if you will. No, that's that's great advice. And I actually, uh, in preparation for this episode, Googled you know broker protocol, whatever, and, and came across one of those websites. And, and thankfully, that particular one did very prominently point folks to the Capital Forensics website. But I could see where there could be, um, and it's generally attorneys that are looking to assist, which is a fair thing to do, but assist advisors with with understanding this and, and registering for the protocol and just going through a whole transition. So I, I understand the appeal, but it, it is important that they are transparent about it, that the ultimate list is is directly with Capital Forensics. And at the end of the day, that's all that's the only one that matters um, because they are the official uh, administrator of it. So uh, certainly appreciate all that, that you do, appreciate all that your firm does to help with this. Uh, and certainly appreciate you jumping on uh, here today, Eric, for all the things he mentioned, the website, uh, the email address. Uh, I will put all that in the show notes. So if you are not already there, uh, if you head on over to transition2ra.com, uh, you'll have all of the show notes. Uh, you can watch this in video format if you're not currently or podcast format, uh, as well as you can find all my white papers, how to contact me, all those things, again, transition to ra.com. We will link to everything. Uh, and with that, Eric, this has been uh, very helpful. Again, it's uh, the devil's in the details, but I think this has been a great, a great start to help people understand what the protocol is and where it might be a help. So thank you for coming on. Great, Brad, and thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, everyone. Take care.